Today's episode of The Degenerate Business School is brought to you by Spy Satellites, terrifying the world over since 1957, and Cyber Warfare. It's scary. James? Glad you're back. Welcome back. Welcome back. Thank you. We're sealed inside. We are. It's a macroeconomic super edition. Pardieu. Or Partlinga in Mandarin. <laughs> <laughs> it's on topic. We're going to talk a lot about uh, the new trade war. We're going to establish a new paradigm for uh, mutually assured destruction. Uh, that will come at the end, and more importantly, James is going to school us on what is actually a useful way to look at CEO wins above replacement. So, let us celebrate the return of Professor Adjunctus, James Lynn. Welcome, James. Welcome. Thank you. Okay, let's return to last week's pioneering metric, CEO wins above replacement. James is here to school us, but Robert... You wanted to talk about a specific person who is another useful proxy in thinking about how you calibrate something like wins above replacement, and that is Tim Cook. Robert, help us understand. If you were to look at somebody like a, a Tim Cook, right, he oversaw Apple during a massive, massive growth in, in Apple uh, market cap, but you can't really pin that on him because he's sort of inherited this machine that was already on a, you know, insane growth path. So or he, he came in after the invention of the 21st century. Right. Right. Yeah. It's the classic example of being born on third. Yeah, exactly. So for that reason, we didn't include him last week. At least I didn't include him last week. And we mentioned you know, it. Did we? We mentioned that you can't include People that like create well. Well, he he didn't found actually, it. He did, he's, he's not a yeah. founder. He's a curator. That's the whole thing, right? It's yeah. like if you're a sock, but you're in. <laughs> if you have a great product line and you have a product roadmap, you can just kind of just cruise, right? And you'll still yeah. gain market share. Yeah, it's all of you know. Steve Jobs is all his hard work, blood and sweat, and then you're just kind of reaping the benefits, right? So that can't be the best, yeah. You know, proxy of. So so we're definitely missing some factors to account for the being born on third base scenario. Yep. Well, that's where, okay. Well, this is the beauty of CEO wins above replacement, which is, uh, or the fact that it will never work. <laughs> <laughs> minor detail. Yeah, minor. The, the perfection of wins above replacement in a baseball environment is baseball is the perfect ecosystem to test individual contributions. And the basic rubric of the game is the same over time, right? Uh, the problem with a business environment with publicly traded companies is you can have sea change inventions like an iPhone and then have someone like Timmy cook come in, who's essentially a curator I would say he's not a sock. He's like a laundered sock. <laughs> like he, it smells good. Like he 
iterates on the invention of the 21st century in a way that is appealing. He seems to like operate with excellence in terms of like trying to innovate in how they distribute the retail. Like there's a lot of like supply chain mumbo jumbo that he has to deal with around like managing costs and a global supply chain. So he like seems to be, he's, he's not a sock. Hansi is the sock. Hansi wins the, the sock award from, from Verizon. Right. Tim is like, he's a garment. He's like better. He's actually like, if you want someone who's not like a visionary, but it's going to curate your business excellently, I feel like Tim is a good, you know, contributor. So he's like a, in the, in the context of a baseball environment, he's like a really strong, like three hole hitter and defensive outfielder, you know, like something like that. Well, then maybe you can say that this CEO war doesn't work with companies that have monopolistic power in some way, right? Obviously, there's only one iOS and there's only one you know, software platform for Apple and iPhone and so forth. So, you know, you have to look at, you know, oligopoly kind of industry or maybe even a yeah, competitive industry that's, you know, with a kind of a commoditized product to see who comes out the best. Well, too, uh, we have our econometric modeler on staff here. Uh, but the key is you got to ISO for industry and it can't be like, Oh, telecom might be easy, right? Yeah. Telecom is probably relatively easy because it's an oligopoly. It's an infrastructure environment, but like energy is probably too expansive. Maybe not to uh, bleed into our other topic of discussion with Valero. Mm -hmm. Uh, but you have like the refinery segment, you have like, the super diversified multinational companies, uh, or even something like tech. Tech is like a too too expansive. So, are, are you suggesting then that something like a telecom industry is the easier way of of really testing this out? Well, no, because I think James James is going to tell us that his idea for indexing or a good proxy case would be the banking industry, right? Yeah, I think I think. With a kind of a long-standing industry that really, you know, goes through a lot of changes, ups and downs, but at the same time, it's been around for a long time and is is kind of a commoditized product, right? And telecom actually could work too, you know, for you know, just as long as it's not there's not too much product differentiation, then you can actually judge the CEO for its merits. Mm -hmm. Well, in the banking context, you have well, here's how they're similar: like high regulation. Right. Commoditization. Uh, maybe the only nuance with a banking sector increasing less over time is like they're all oligopolies in effect. Right. Yeah. Um, but unlike the uh, telecom industry, you're not subject to a whole lot of uh, uh, like there aren't many new inventions coming out in the world of, of finance. Right. There's not a lot of a lot of new technology or anything to really differentiate this. So it's the same services being offered across four or five major players. True. Mm -hmm. And frankly, that's been the same for the last hundred years. Yeah. Largely. Yeah. Which is a byproduct of the regulatory environment. Right. Yeah. Um, so, well, in that regard, the only nuance I would add for like, uh, telecom is like spectrum is a big variable and like, license spectrum and, and capital in banking, you have this perfect actual use case where on average, I would say you have 
longer tenures, or at least in recent history, probably relative to other sectors, because the median tenure for a CEO is five years. So you have uh, J.P. Morgan, Jamie Dimon's been there since before the crisis, right? Yes, yeah, so the 06. City has been the shit show, I think, mm-hmm. in terms of like CEO turnover, right? So Vikram Pan is definitely a suck. <laughs> for sure. Well, actually, no. Wells Fargo has been the real shit show. Yeah, well, they're shit show too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, like there, you could you could establish a clear hierarchy of like who has the highest wins above replacement. It's obviously Diamond, right? Yeah. And Good you question. have a, a really good test case in that every single bank was, well, except Wells Fargo, actually, interestingly, but like had a withering like 2008 financial crisis they had to navigate through and kind of like rebuild their banking brand or their trust with the public or navigate a new regulatory environment. So you have a lot of like uh, test cases that you can throw at like basically four homies that are in the same situation. Yeah, if you think about how does a CEO handle crisis, right? So you think about you know, JP Morgan, even though, you know, so for banking, really your kind of big decision is like, where do we put our money? Where do we, you know, wh- what's our what's our long-term strategy? So Jamie Dimon says, oh, you know, we're probably, you know, we're not going to get way steep in, into subprime like all the other banks. Maybe we'll get knee-deep, ankle-deep into subprime. So that's why if you think about pre-post-08, you know, I think is it J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo, surprisingly, were the two banks that have increased market cap significantly since then, and obviously J.P. Morgan more than Wells Fargo. But you look at, yeah, Citigroup, B of A, they've really have never recovered. And so it's, you know, it speaks a testament to kind of the management, to kind of the forward thinking, the the investment strategy of, you know, good CEO. And that's like kind of the hallmark of a good CEO is just to kind of see the, see the future and, to, you know, make good decisions based on, based on kind of being a forward looking leader. So, so we've had a fair amount of... You got your phone in front of you, so I feel like you're about to say something profound. No, I'm, 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 just, trying to, I'm just trying to differentiate where the CEO wore, like, okay. you know, where that cutoff is, because uh, the gentleman you mentioned at City had the unfortunate um, situation of being there during the crisis, right? So Michael Corbett's been there since 12, but City's done essentially nothing, yeah. right? So the other we, sock. Yeah, the other sock. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, just in general, City's been a shit show for God knows how long. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the situation where everything and everybody took a shit during 2008, like, how much of that do you put on, on what was his name, Pandit, I believe? Yeah, but that's the thing, yeah. right? It's like J.P. Morgan didn't go down as much as all the other players. Yeah. And so, and they've... You know, increased market cap. You know, like with doubled multiples right. since '08. So it just speaks to him as a forward-thinking uh, leader, and, and kind of seeing the, the the good investments there, and kind of yeah. not getting into subprime as much right. as all the other players. Or, or did. to what extent do you recognize catastrophic risk for what it is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So. Robert and I last week, we our biggest primitive CEO wins above replacement pre-post, which is the John Albin sales analytics <laughs> construct that I've applied to the yes. real world, uh, was our boy Satya at Microsoft. 
vis-a-vis Steve Ballmer, which I think is just a, per- a perfect pre-post example. Yeah, good example. What What is the better approach, probably, if we're going to s- create a systematic CEO war? But rather than well, that's the thing, pre-post. I mean, with obvious, huge qualitative adjustments and sector-by-sector sector analysis. Yeah, because you know, business changes rapidly, right? So, you know, whatever happened for over 2010 to 2019 versus, let's say, 01 to 10, it was completely different, right? So that's the kind of difficulty being pre-post. So let's say if you're just kind of a sock that's running a company <laughs> that's like a cloud computing company, you would have you would have gotten positive market cap. Yeah, it's hard not going, to succeed. Yeah, it's hard not to succeed. But if you're, let's say, in retail and going from 2010 to now, you know, you might have had to be a great CEO just to make break even. Mm-hmm. So you have to then index it by the industry you're in or whatever you're you're selling. You so, know, for instance, sense. though I don't have the numbers in front of me, I would say, using your examples, Target is probably a company that is a big box retailer that has navigated the waters of retail evolution pretty nicely. Okay. Costco is another one. Costco has like found a niche that is... They built a moat around themselves that Amazon can't penetrate. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at cloud computing, you're right because everything's in the cloud. If you're a cloud computing company and you're not seeing exponential growth in your market cap, then you got a you're a real smelly sock problem on your hands. No, that that's that's worse than a sock. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so if you think about, let's say I'll, I'll use retail as an example too. Like Dollar General is a good example of you know low-cost retailer that focused on high margins, and so their CEO, I think Todd Vassos, the CEO, and they were kind of blowing up in rural America. They are kind of the low-cost, um, you know, low, I guess, kind of, you know, um, whatever, price-sensitive whole uh, uh, re- uh, rural America retail provider. Mm-hmm. So they, they're doing well. They're blowing up, right? They think their market cap, I think, when he started was like 75. Now they're up to 120. So Dollar General is a good example of a retail success story where they shouldn't have had success because they should all have been disrupted Shut by up. Amazon okay. or Walmart. So, so, so let me ask you this. Okay. Let me ask you this. Lay it on me, brother. One of the worst situations mm-hmm. we've seen in the retail space is Sears mm-hmm. with our, our buddy Eddie Lambert. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Lambert, sorry. Good friend of the show. Good friend of the show. <laughs> we've seen him manage see, uh, Sears well into the ground, but he personally has made it you know, he's made a ton of money in the process, and I believe he was getting sued because of what he was trying to do, trying to extract all sorts of money and whatnot. Well, I, so I would say, this is actually a great use case for CEO wins above replacement, because at the end of it all, it's the, the utility of the metric is how well is the CEO that's in place actually managing the success of the enterprise that you have stock in, and by that lens, he's a CEO war disaster, but like a profiteer maximo. You know, so he's enriching himself. <laughs> See, that's the thing. So now you can't even go with negative market cap because at the same time, right, he was actually screwing over the bondholders because he's finding a way. I think what he wasn't he doing, like using his own hedge fund to yes. yeah to invest in he's a bonds that, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that were that were siphoning. It's like pretty much a cheap way to siphon assets from Sears. Yeah. And so now you're screwing over the bondholders. So it's actually worse than your negative market cap. Because now it's like you're screwing over the bondholders. So that's another, I guess, level of, of negative war that. So, so we, we don't cap this. We don't cap this at a zero market cap. We cap this. Well, at, for, yeah, first. He's lens, a special case. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> first lens is what is the, 
basically the mean like market cap growth in the sector that you're in. Okay. As the baseline performance of a sock. Okay. So in cloud computing, like everyone, and I'm using a blanket statement, should have a positive market cap growth. Right. But if it's way less than the mean market cap growth, then the CEO is a negative war. So th- this pains me to say it because he's made me a, a, a substantial amount of money, but I'm thinking Chuck Robbins. Chucky. Chuck Chucky Robbins. Rob. Cisco's done quite well. But I wouldn't consider them to be a company, fundamentally a cloud company, right? There's a portion of them that's cloud. But that's not actually their... Their focus. Their, well, it's not their like DNA. And yeah. That's where... He, Cisco belongs to a class of like Silicon Valley dinosaurs like Oracle, right? Where they're, they're not like natively built as cloud computing companies. Like Salesforce is a, is a cloud company native, right? Okay. So they're, that's what I'm saying. Like tech yeah. as a pervasive blanket statement is, is, uh, something you have to add a lot of nuance to. And uh, candidly, like, well, okay, let's just say we were creating a sub-vertical in tech called social, right? Yeah. The obvious candidates you would put in there are, like, Facebook and Snap. But past that, like, who else would you put in that category? In which case, from a modeling perspective, it's hard to... It's Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Twitter, sorry. Yeah. Twitter, obvious example that I left out. But still, out. Three, three is not, not nearly enough. Yeah, not a significant sample size, but it's a distinct sub-vertical you think about it, and the then world you're, of tech. And in this case, with, with, with Cisco's case, right, you're kind of being disrupted by also the, the issue with Huawei, right? I, I was actually yeah. listening to the Cisco CEO talking about the opportunity. There's actually opportunity with this whole Huawei backlash, and now they can kind of take over that kind of hardware vertical of you know 5G. But, you know, and he was saying because, how, like, Because we're five, taking, like, a mercantilist mm-hmm. isolation yeah. stance against but Huawei. But is, isn't the issue with Huawei that we're substantially behind China when it comes to 5G? Isn't that the whole the whole thing that's causing I don't, this? I don't know how much that's, like, uh, alarmist propaganda versus reality. I could be wrong. I'm not sure how far ahead Huawei is. I mean, can't Qualcomm and, and Cisco kind of come in and kind of do the same thing? Maybe they're just not... Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Probably should have researched that a little more. Right. Well, should we parlay that into the other topic of discussion that we had slated for today, which is you and I said the trade war doesn't matter. We did say that, and we're wrong. Yeah, which is why James is here. Why James is here? Why James is here? There's another connective tissue, though. So the trade war, James is going to illustrate to us, <laughs> has. Potential dire implications for the biggest prediction this show has ever produced, which is the great oil crisis of 2020. (laughs) (laughs) So you're never coming on again. (laughs) All right, so we're in it. We're all in it together. And in the context of just, 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 all three of us, just to clear that up, going hard in the paint on Valero. We all have we all have positions in Valero, (laughs) and it's been a tough week. Yes, Uh, it has. All right, so Q3, but so anyways. You definitely illustrated in the original macroeconomic super edition that the oil, the energy crisis, the trade war, it's all part and parcel of the same macroeconomic environment ecosystem. Okay, mm-hmm. trade war. What are 
the trade war implications of America and China not only not coming to an agreement, but seemingly going back and retrenching into positions of tarifhood. Yeah, so now it's not just about trade deficit because, you know, the president's idea of, oh, we have a huge trade deficit with China, let's try to reduce it. It's a lot more complex than that. And just the idea of him just complaining about a trade deficit with one country is kind of ludicrous because, you know, we run trade deficits all the time. We actually have trade surpluses with other countries. Yeah. But now it becomes a more kind of structural issue of forced technology transfer, IP theft. And I think that's what the whole trade war now is kind of revolved into. Well, that that is the front of the, let's call it the new Cold War. Right? Yeah. The, mm-hmm. the hegemonic tension between the two superpowers is IP, cyber warfare, etc. Yeah, because you think about profits, corporate profits, or, yeah. or just any sort of GDP growth. The cloud. But yeah, mm-hmm. the cloud, right? Mm-hmm. Old days, it was your you know, trading physical goods. Nowadays, it's all about cloud infrastructure and you know, yeah, cloud type you know, technical goods, right? So, so now there's, there's an issue, right? Though the issue, the issue is technology transfer, right? You know, selling chips and, you know, Huawei and, and, and all that. So it's, it's all, um, yeah, it, it's all part of that same, that same, that same issue. Yeah. Now, now, one of the texts that you sent us, which absolutely <laughs> horrified me, was that this somehow could derail the entire premise of this podcast, which is the great oil crisis of 2020. Can you, can you please elaborate on that? Because I, I lost sleep over that one. Well, before sure. he gets into that, though, can I just add a wrinkle to what you're talking about? Sure. It was in the Wall Street Journal in the weekend edition, either last week or the week before. So... Again, this is not a politics podcast, but to James's point, like there's still a, the market state that is the United States or that is China creates bridgeheads for private enterprise sponsored by either country to capitalize on the revolution in cloud computing. This is what China and Russia are both doing. So Donald Trump was lampooned for talking about the creation of a space force, which is hilarious. But a Space Force already exists, and it's called the Air Force Space Command, and they basically, like, their whole charter is to, like, monitor, number one, all, like, uh, extraorbital activity, like satellites not crashing into each other and creating a gravity event. The other one is, though, they spy on what China and Russia are doing outside of the atmosphere, and China has developed a satellite whose sole purpose is to kamikaze itself into American satellites. So like, the fuck? This shit's for real. Yeah, that's, in space, that's bad. That's in bad space. for everybody. It's bad for everyone. It's bad for the cloud. Still investing in the cloud, <laughs> but I really hope that doesn't happen. It's bad for twenty first century technology. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, cool. Sidebar. Anyway, back to why is the escalation of the trade war bad for the great oil crisis of 2020. I can't believe I'm praying for a great oil crisis. Like, this, this. Please be a great oil crisis and not a cloud crisis. And, and that's the whole thing because right before it was, now you think we're in a, we're in a prolonged we're a prolonged trade war. We're, everyone's digging their heels in, right? Yeah. So America wants structural change in China. China wants to stay face. They don't want to look weak because in the end of the day, I think the president knows that in any trade war, China gets hurt more than America, right? You're saying, okay, well, you know, we're going to tariff $20 billion, $200 billion worth of goods, and China 
retaliates with, okay, we're, go- we're going to tariff $60 billion worth of goods. Yeah, it's always like a 3 to 1, 4 to 1 type of ratio. Well, by the way, so, I think you know that, and that's incidentally true. I really don't think the Donald knows that. I think, well, I think, I think he's empowered. Someone around him is telling him that, probably. Because like, I, think, down. I think he's empowered because the, the economy's doing fairly well, right? Even yeah, there, was, yeah. there was an article in The Economist today how, you know, job growth is great in the OECD countries, it's right? True. So, so he's, feel, he's feeling pretty good about himself right now, and he feels empowered to kind of double down on, his, on, 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 on the trade talk and on the kind of the hardline stance that we're taking, right? But it looks like it's kind of a prolonged thing because they want now structural change not just kind of a lowering you say hey just let us sell you more soybeans and you know open your markets it's not it's it's a lot more deeper than that well and, and those so, are all peripheral issues yeah, to mm-hmm. the central intru- yeah. issue which is ip mm-hmm. course technology transfer all that 5g evolution so so it's not going to have a very quick uh resolution it, it could be long you know and this that's the uncertainty right there was a g20 meeting end of june so maybe they might have a resolution there. Maybe there might be some concessions there, but you know, I don't, I don't know if the market's kind of who, what's, what's priced in, but it's not likely, right? This thing's going to be, who knows? It could be years. It could be just a long thing, maybe all the way through the election. Who knows? So we, Robert and I talked about this probably like a couple of years ago, which is speculation about there is a cyclical recession that will happen that everyone feels like is relatively imminent if you just use historical proxies. So, and, and by the way, everything in the news cycle about U.S.-China trade relations is what dictates the big macro swings in market performance. So, if this trade war becomes a runaway train, is this the genesis? Is it actually the beginning of the end in terms of this is the genesis of the next recession? Well, at least it's a paradigm shift, right? Because, mm-hmm. I mean, before the last 20, 30 years, it's... You know, China makes it, America buys it, right? And that whole system, I think, might come to an end, right? With this, what this whole trend—that's what the Donald's trying to do, and that's the whole—that's kind of the big picture policy shift that we're we're trying to make. And I think, you know, that then if you're a company, if you're an American company, that you're looking at this and you're saying, you know what, I think I'm going to try to maybe look at domestic production a little bit more. You know, with advances in AI and 3D printing, maybe I'm going to try to move factories closer to where the end users are. And maybe that's like a global shift. And then that kind of puts a wrench into the great oil crisis of 2020 because, you know, maybe there's a, a macro decline in global shipping. I mean, it's all possible. But but there's a problem with that because then you're trying to Son change supply chains. Bastard. Why didn't I think but of it? It's so obvious. But at the same time, there is these complex supply chains. So you look at, let's say, I mean, uh, that whole debacle in in um, the Foxconn factory in Wisconsin is kind of a perfect example of, okay, so let's bring manufacturing back to America. Well, the problem is that, okay, so let's say Foxconn, they build a factory that's supposed to make paper-thin you know, LCD screens, LED screens, and but they don't have the... The infrastructure to support it. So, okay, so you make these paper-thin LED screens. What are you going to do? Where are you going to assemble the TVs? They don't have TV assembly factories, right? You're going to ship them back to China now? That doesn't make sense, right? So America has not built the proper infrastructure to even look at disrupting the supply chain, right? Still, these supply chains that have existed. They've kind of built up for decades, and now you can't really just throw a wrench in them and change them and all of a sudden move all production to the well, U.S. What can I once? Can I mount a irrational defense of the great oil crisis? <laughs> so, okay, a couple things. One is, to your point, though, there was a specific example of 
uh, one thing that is really interesting about the global economic ecosystem is rare earth metals. And there was something recently about how if this is actually going to be a new paradigm that like rare earth metal refinement and extraction would move out of China because now a lot of it is actually imported from China. China is like the biggest exporter of rare earth metals, which is basically batteries for your smartphone, right. et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Now on to my defense of the great oil crisis. So let's say um, we basically create a disincentive structure where it's just ruinously expensive to ever do anything with China is there a redirect to, I don't know, South America, Africa, that creates the same global tonnage of shipping and a different supply chain? Maybe not in 2020, but in a five to ten year interval, if this becomes a, a permanent paradigm shift where uh, the OECD countries, the first world, uh, United States, Western Europe, Northern Europe, that uh, this global supply chain just redirects to other parts of the world where there's an oversupply of labor, which is China's mm-hmm. secret sauce, right, in the yeah. manufacturing segment. It's possible, but the fact is that we're getting out of all these kind of multilateral trade deals. We got out of TPP, yeah. right? So we don't really want to trade with other which, countries. Are we making yeah. it harder to? Well, TPP was just a... But TPP is not... It wasn't perfect. It was kind of like a, a lot of, a, you know, there was a lot of IP issues and you know, corporate handouts and things like that. So, But TPP was essentially a restatement of our Pacific Empire, right? Yeah. Like a unified front between Australia, Japan, South Korea. And very corporate-friendly. Exactly. Well, one, one of the things that, that strikes me as rather dangerous in this, in this uh, trade war is that China holds about a trillion dollars in U.S. debt, right? Yeah, but... So at any given moment, in theory, they could sell that yeah but they, they screw themselves up oh, yeah they? yeah because you would just print more money to buy that debt and then you know you'd, you'd screw them over they'd, they'd get so screwed and then and their currency would devalue because if you opened up chinese markets to to american capital like okay so my the value of my place would would skyrocket because then all the chinese capital would go to wherever i i the american real estate you know you think the american yeah. real estate market is bad now robert Imagine if there were no capital. I'm a property owner. I'm I'm all for this. <laughs> yeah, you you would you, yeah. all benefit as right? people who live in California. Yes. This is you all benefit. Good for us. You just you just you just get because if they ever open capital controls in China, you, capital will flow out there faster than anything, right? No, no, so you, we'd all benefit. No, from it. My, my whole thinking is if they if they were to offload this trillion dollars in capital, it shoots up interest rates, which then just yeah. But then America just prints money to buy it for cheap. That's quant QE. They just do QE3, QE4, QE5, whatever they do. And that's that's how it works. And you, and you don't see this as an issue in the long term? No, because debt is, is you know, that's, that's another theme, yeah, right? Yeah. Debt. Well, I'm going to agree with James because I don't understand currency. Let me tell you this. <laughs> well, the, the, the IP, cloud computing, like cyber forward anything, national security interests, business interests is everything, right? And that... To James's point, that will become clear over time. It's right. already becoming clear. Like right. that is the essential problem of the 21st century clash between China and America. Yeah, I think I think right now both countries are trying to find uh, ways of leverage, right? So you're saying with the debt, right, or you know with IP with technology, yeah. right? It's, Soybeans, it's all, they're all just you know it's, it's all like yeah. it's like it's like how, what what kind of leverage do we have over the other? So it's it's like almost a mini cold war. Yeah. But, you know, the debt won't work. 
That's okay. the one. That's the one thing that that won't work. I think. I think the rare earths might, but then the only thing is, I think they might have tried that before, and then I think there was like a lot of black market type of shipping that might have got around sanctions and all that. So, well, it is interesting, right? So, in the context of the Soviet Cold War, nuclear weapons changed everything, right? And the invention of nuclear weapons made it so that like conventional confrontation didn't make sense anymore. In this new paradigm of the 21st century. Now it's not everyone who is a power is a nuclear power. Right. And that right. creates a certain context in which no one actually overtly goes to war. Hopefully. So what's the 21st century equivalent of a nuke? It's the fucking kamikaze satellite, which China has, and we don't, but then everyone loses there. Well, I guess everyone loses in the nuclear war too. Yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, the kamikaze satellite, if it creates a gravity ca- catastrophe event, which, which just basically like, blows up the satellite infrastructure that's hovering around the earth. Yeah, that wouldn't be a good thing. Uh, And that would hamstring everyone, but could be a potential calamity or would be the the thing. So in the 20th century, everyone wanted to avoid a nuclear holocaust because a nuclear holocaust implied the end of the world. Right. A satellite cybernetic uh, conflagration would mean the end of the modern world as we know it. I mean, we'd all survive. We just wouldn't have the internet. Which, I mean, <laughs> yeah. why would and you there want would be to survive? An incredible destruction of our degenerate stock portfolios <laughs> and a hilarious destruction in, like, capitalist wealth the world over. Which would be terrible, probably, on balance. But, uh, yeah, so that would be the new sort of Damocles that would hover over international relations for our lifetime. Unless they figure out a way to, I don't know, disintegrate all, you know, matter that just like kind of like hovering or like orbiting the earth, they'd have to figure out some kind of technology that like <laughs> disintegrates all that. Like it, it is fascinating though with, when it comes to nukes, right? So <laughs> the U S has them, Russia has them, whomever else has them. That's how you deter this. Do we have them? Or if Russia goes rogue and they, they kamikaze their satellite, mm-hmm. how do we... Well, the, okay, so the article that I read about the Air Force Space Command... I was busy last weekend, so I... Yeah. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, you gotta do what you gotta do. They were making the point that everyone in the Air Force Space Command feels like we're behind in this like sinister race to like dominate uh, the space, which... Candidly, we all know we work in corporations. We know that that could just be a posture from Air Force Base Command to say that they're under resourced, but really, like, right, they actually are fine. But that will be actually the military realm of the future that matters. And the fragility of this satellite next to that satellite next to this satellite, and all of them are central to our modern way of life, will be the thing that prevents, hopefully, the United States and China from doing some ultimately really dumb shit. But who knows? Well, it's all, well, it's all, it's all part of this whole idea that you know, it's mutually assured destruction, right? Because right. if you blow up a satellite, then the debris just orbits the Earth, and then yeah. no other satellites can actually function. Exactly, it ruins right? it ruins the actual exosphere yeah. for future satellites. And then you have all these little like metal fragments <laughs> that are moving at like whatever twenty thousand yeah. miles miles per second that are going to run into your communication satellites and then basically any satellite technology is worthless because it's all it's all going to get blown up by this kind of kind of debris well and that's actually the original charter of air force space command is to make sure that doesn't happen because all guided munitions drone strikes uh 
are dependent on that. surveillance, right? Like we can't do targeted drone strikes in Pakistan if we don't have satellites. And if you think about it, America's actually a good steward of this because they're the ones that actually make sure they were the ones probably even warn Chinese Chinese satellites and other satellites for other countries that hey, you know what, there's this debris heading your way. You probably want to move your satellite yeah. somewhere else. It's actually like so an international That's when you yeah. need like a kind of I don't know if altruistic or some, you know, force that so it, it truly sure. is a kamikaze. Like, but if this thing to wins. James's point, it's probably just the creation of because China's not stupid. Whatever else you might think, they know that Air Force Space Command is watching everything they do. They create this ostentatious grab, and apparently the mechanics of it are hilarious. It's like something out of a Bond movie, where literally it doesn't actually just crash into a satellite. It like grabs it and like conjoins itself to whatever satellite it targets. It could just be something they're using as a point of leverage. Like, you don't cooperate, like, we're going to start deploying these satellites and disrupt the, essentially, what creates the modern no, infrastructure. This, this seems like something out of a cartoon, honestly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. All right. But Every- it's real. Yeah. Everyone's back. Yeah. I think we did it. We did it.